Larry Tribe, finally. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. We're joined today by a giant, a living legend, Larry Tribe. We've had a number of high-profile guests on the podcast, but Larry Tribe rivals them all, the biggest. As usual, I'll give an introduction and Professor Tribe can edit, amplify, correct as much as he'd like right after that, and then we'll have a discussion as we usually do. Larry Tribe is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard University, which implies that he no longer has an active load there. This is a rare, a rare avis, a rare award. We've interviewed at least one other university professor in the past, um, which is a decent fraction already. He's been affiliated with the Harvard University community since the early 60s, when he was a student there as an undergraduate. In fact, I think the late 50s, and then went to law school, became a tenured professor at a very young age. Since then, he's published over 100 books and articles written or helped author the constitutions of many governments around the world, pleaded, oh gee, is it over 40, is it over 35 cases in the Supreme Court in the United States, as well as many more in the appellate courts right below the United States Supreme Court. He's been an advisor to presidents, senators, governors, congressmen, congresswomen. He authored the most cited legal text of the last nearly century, the famous treatise on American constitutional law that we'll treat today, and has been cited as the most important legal mind in America not to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. Larry Tribe, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's been years since I encountered you in my I guess in my classroom and in the halls of Harvard. So, and I know it's been hard to schedule this. Uh, you're busy, I'm busy, but thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Would you like, first of all, you are invited to amend, amplify, correct um, any of the things that I put into your summarized bio? Well, I mean, the, the statements of opinion about what a giant I am, I have certainly <laughs> think that they're exaggerated. I feel awkward being put on that kind of pedestal, but the factual statements you made, I think, seem perfectly accurate. Well, okay. Modest as always. Let's start at the beginning. Um, you were born in Shanghai two days before my mother was born in uh, Brooklyn, I believe, as it turns out. My mother has since died. Um, why were you born in Shanghai? So th this is going to be a kind of chiasmus in this question. Um, why were you born in, the Shang in Shanghai? And we now find ourselves in another moment of Jewish life, the Jewish trajectory. Why were you born in Shanghai in 1941? And um, what were your parents doing there? Well, on the question of why I was born in Shanghai and why I was born when I was born, that's rather cosmic and I have no answer. <laughs> I can tell you a little about why my parents were there. My 
mother was born in Harbin in 1905. Uh, her parents were born, her parents and grandparents came from what I, I guess some have called the bloodlands combination of Ukraine, Belarus. I've never fully understood exactly where my ancestors came from, but I know it was that part of the world. Mm. My father was born near Minsk. Um, mm. He was kind of chased out of out of Russia as part of the Tsar's pogroms in mm. the early 20th century. He and his family went across the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, mm. He met my mother in Harbin. He fell in love with her. I, can't quite say she fell in love with him. I, I know she adored him, but but he was not really the ideal person in her life. But they married, and my father became an American citizen. Not long after that, he went to California. He became a citizen, then he went back to Harbin. Jews had a hard time finding anywhere in the world where they could be safe. My much of my family was wiped out either by by Stalin or by Hitler. <laughs> my parents uh, were born in, were were married in Shanghai when Jews had to leave Harbin in in uh, in the late thirties, and because Shanghai was about the only place that the Jews in the Far East or really anywhere in the world could could safely go. Uh, that's where they were. We weren't. Uh, we didn't live in the Shanghai ghetto. My parents had no money, but somehow they managed to live in a private apartment with the number of my my mother's relatives. My my <laughs> father's relatives were were not there. I never met my father's mother or father, but I knew my mother's parents really quite well, uh, and. It was in October of 41 that I was born. And, you know, when I look at documentaries about the buildup to World War II, I'm often amazed by how crazy the world was and how little I learned about all of that as I was growing up. I mean, I was busy, you know, doing my own little thing. And, and if I could have... If I could relive all those days, there's so many things I would love to ask my parents about, you know, what it was like to be where they were, um, to know that so many members of their families had been had been killed. Um, <laughs> what did they know about what was going on in 1941 uh, when when Japan had just begun to occupy China? What did they know about Europe? I know so little about it. So in a sense, your question asks a lot, and I wish I had more answers, but I know I feel incredibly lucky uh, to have survived that, you know, being born in such a, in such a violent environment. I do remember all kinds of things when I was a little kid um, about uh, sort of bombings and, and uh, violence, in the streets of Shanghai, but I'm getting ahead of the story. So to answer your question, why was I born in Shanghai? That's sort of the reason. Okay. Well, I was very happy for you to get ahead of the story. Um, how long did your parents live and were they in your lives 
until their deaths. Were they in your life until their until your, their deaths? My father died in 1980, right, right at the. Uh, I guess the day of his 40th wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. And it, my mother lived until she was in her 90s in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She died, of, like, you know, I, my chronological memory is very poor. So I, I would have to look it up, you know, how many years ago did she die? But it was a number of years ago. They were basically part of my life while I was in college and law school, but my father died just as I was doing my first Supreme Court argument. And I, I draw a lot of connections in my own memory between the substance of that argument and 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 his death that I can go into if you want. Yeah, tell us, please. Well, Richmond newspapers, it was, the, the issue was whether um, the, victims of a of of a murder that is the the survivors of 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 a murder had some kind of right to watch justice be done as as the person who killed their their family member in this case it was the person who killed their mother uh, was on trial and this guy had been tried and and there had been several mistrials it was in Richmond, uh, Virginia, and he, um, after after several mistrials, there was kind of some kind of sweetheart deal made between the prosecution, the defense, the judge, in which the trial would occur. He would be uh, he would be acquitted, um, and that would be it. There would be no public in the courtroom. No press would be allowed, even though the uh, newspapers of Richmond, Virginia, wanted to observe and report on the trial. The survivors of the murder wouldn't get to see it. Um, And that struck me as profoundly unjust. Technically, there were issues about whether the First Amendment could be used to say that there was a right of the press and the public to observe the trial. But it was not exactly the standard First Amendment case. I mean, in the First Amendment, you have a willing speaker uh, and willing listeners, and the government is getting in between them. It's censoring the process of speech. It's saying, no, this is not something we want you to hear. In this case, there was no willing speaker. It was the prosecution, the defense, the judge. They certainly didn't want this broadcast. The jury was not interested in being broadcast. In fact, the judge was going to conduct this as a bench trial. There was no jury in the final proceeding. So there was no willing speaker. There was a willing listener. You know, the, the victims wanted to hear it, but you don't have a right to see something or hear something when the person who's speaking doesn't want to address you. It's like... You know, I'd love to know what's in someone's diary, but but I don't have a right to read it if they don't want to show it to me. Right. So from day one, there were really serious problems with making this a standard First Amendment case. Uh-huh. But when the uh, Richmond newspapers lawyers asked whether I would represent them, and I said I I was interested in doing it, the the, 
highest court of, of Virginia had ruled that there was no right of the press or the public to be there, I made it clear that my theory of the case would not rely solely on the First Amendment, but would rely on a historic and not explicitly named right in the Constitution, an implied right, a penumbral right, if you will. An invisible right. Hmm? An invisible right. An invisible right, yeah. Part of the invisible Constitution. I thought it was a basic right, nonetheless. And Hmm. it was important to me that the Constitution itself contained crucial instruction about such rights. It, It basically said in the Ninth Amendment that the fact that you can't see it, the fact that it's not written down, doesn't mean that a right doesn't exist. It's, it's the only sort of reader's instruction in the Constitution. It says that the fact that a right is not enumerated shall not be construed to deny or disparage its existence. And I had always thought that was a really important principle. But the other lawyers in the case thought I was crazy. I mean, the Ninth Amendment hadn't been relied on ever by the U.S. Supreme Court to justify the existence of a right. They were quite committed to using standard First Amendment parlance, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Why was I going off in this weird direction? And I said, well, you know, you're entirely free to argue what you want, and you can file an amicus brief, but if I'm to do this case and do the argument, this is the way I plan to to pursue it. So long story short, I was asked to do the case. It was pro bono, I think, or virtually pro bono. Um, The case had a dramatic turn for me uh, because 10 days before I was scheduled to argue it, his 40th anniversary, my mother and father's 40th anniversary, my father suddenly dropped dead. He was only 72. Um, It was an unexpected death. I had spoken to him just the night before to wish him happy anniversary. And I thought, since this was a really traumatic event, maybe the court would postpone the argument. And I called the clerk's office and Back in the day, I was a completely unknown entity. I'd never argued a case in the Supreme Court before. In more recent years, if something traumatic like that had happened, I suspect that the clerk of the court would have been accommodating. But the clerk said, no, you know, if you can't argue it, get someone else to argue. We're not moving the argument. At first, I was kind of pissed. But in the end, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because rather than spending those 10 days just groaning over my loss, Mm I had something concrete to focus on. And in my own mind, there was a sort of connection because I had, you know, hadn't seen my father on the last day of his life. When I finally did fly out to California and saw him in the open casket, I had this feeling that that really wasn't him. You know, that was the, the sort of the, physical form of the guy I knew as my father. Where had my father gone? What, you know, I, I was quite discombobulated. And I thought how, how horrible it is to be denied sort of direct access to something as fundamental as the death of your parent or 
justice for I see. whoever killed your parent. So in my mind, the right of the press and the public to observe that trial and my not having been able to say goodbye to my father and the fact that the guy I saw lying in the coffin really wasn't my father, that was all blurred together in a kind of mixture that gave added poignancy um, to the issues in the case and has made that decision. We did end up winning, I guess, either unanimously or almost unanimously, um, gave that case a particular resonance in, in, my, in my memory. I know that because I had so little opportunity to, to do what I ordinarily would have done in a later case, I mean, I would, would have visited the courthouse, would have seen what the setup was. The, the judge who excluded the press and the public had given some cockamamie excuse like this courtroom was not suited for the for observation by the press and the public. And I looked into that and it turned out, on the contrary, it had been the very courtroom in which Patrick Henry had delivered one of his most important addresses <laughs> to, to a crowded uh, courtroom. And I had found a, a painting in the National Archives of Patrick Henry delivering that address. And I had included a copy of that painting in the appendix in the in the Supreme Court brief, kind of underscoring the absence of any decent rationale uh, to treat this as a closed proceeding. Um, and among other things, the uh, the argument was odd because Justice Rehnquist had leaned forward. He was not yet Chief Justice. He had leaned forward and had asked me. Mr. Tribe, where exactly is um, the Richmond County Courthouse? And I said, well, it's in Hanover County, uh, Justice Rehnquist. And he said, well, where is Hanover County? And I said, oh, what am I going to say to that? I didn't, didn't have a clue where Hanover County was. And I said, well, I think it's near Richmond, Virginia. I said, the great geographer. And he said, everything in Virginia is near Richmond. And I felt, oh, you know, what am I going to do? He did end up being, I think, the dissenter. The, the, the opinion was written by Warren Berger. And happily enough, and this was important because otherwise I think I would have felt that the case didn't stand for the full principle that I thought was important. Happily enough, he relied heavily on the Ninth Amendment. He said mm. that, that the First Amendment does support, uh, to some extent, the right of the press and the public to be present. But this is deeper than that. This is about the fundamental right embedded in, in, in the history of Anglo-American jurisprudence of, mm. of the public through its representative, the press, because the public couldn't entirely fit into any courtroom to observe justice being done. And that that's important to the, to the democratic legitimacy of our form of government. Now, clearly, there is no general right of the public to observe any and all government proceedings that matter. I mean, there's right. a lot that goes on in the Supreme Court's own conference or in the or in the Oval Office or elsewhere. Even without developing a theory of executive privilege, there's a lot that goes on. 
that the public has no right to see. And so drawing the line between those things that are intrinsically within the right of the public to observe and those that aren't is, is something the court has struggled with in all of the decades since Richmond Newspapers was decided uh, in 1980. And there remains the question still of whether there is simply a right of the press to be there as surrogates for the public or a right, right of the public to actually watch. I mean, the very question of whether the forthcoming trials of the one former president in American history who waged an insurrection against the country and who tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, whether that trial, which is still scheduled to occur before Judge Chutkin starting this coming spring, uh, whether that trial is something that the public has a right to observe under the existing rules, federal trials are not televised. They are not, you know, they sometimes, the audio is live stream, but the visual stuff is, is not available. So all of those questions remain up in the air. Um, and wherever we began this little digression, um, it is the case that Richmond newspapers becomes an important, uh, an important piece of my, of my life. Still to this day, just, just, just while we're on this topic of digressions, and then we'll get back to the question I, I have in mind, please. Um, still to this day, uh, two hours, maybe three hours sitting uh, in your small office of an old house of yours, taking instruction from you as to what a project I was supposed to pursue um, would be in the dimensions and the contours of that project um, for two and a half hours at the beginning of the project, the kickoff of the project, re remain sort of in my memory. I think you spoke for two to three hours without notes and without stopping. And um, I think those that two to three hour period remains for me the most data rich two to three hour data dump I've what, ever had. When was that, Michael? What was the uh, I've been in law school, maybe two to 2002 or three, uh, right at the start of the summer when I was assisting you. Um, and uh, you sort of sat down and said, how are you? And then three hours later, let's say I got up and I had a raft of notes, but you, you just <laughs> dumped it. Was, so very, so this, is a familiar mo this is a familiar motion to me. Um, but let me come back because you made, you made a couple of interesting remarks that I want to pick up on that are personal in nature. And I do want to visit the important topic of the former President Trump later. But you lamented just a few minutes ago that you never had a chance to ask your parents about their perspectives on what happened uh, to their families, to the, their time, what happened in their, in their experience in their time in Shanghai and so forth, in Harbin. And yet they lived for a long time. What is it about your relationship or what was it about that generation or that time or your life that prohibited you or allowed you to avoid asking these questions well into your adulthood, well into your late adulthood in the case of your mom? It's a very good question. And I'm not sure whether it was more about me or about my parents. I know that my father never seemed to want to talk about his wartime experience hmm. when he was imprisoned in a Japanese prison camp, not exactly a concentration camp. I don't think the people were, I know people weren't tortured there in a systematic way, although he did tell me that if he had tried to escape, he would have been tortured. Um, 
but it was a horrible experience and he <laughs> never seemed to want to talk about the details. So, you know, I kind of knew that that was a dead end. I couldn't find out much. It was also the case that he was much less vivacious and, and extroverted and outgoing after the experience of being imprisoned by the Japanese mm. for several years. You remember a difference. You can recall a difference. I'm sorry? You can recall a difference. You have, you have a memory from your childhood. No, it's indirect. It's indirect. Okay. Uh -huh. it was before he was imprisoned, I was just a couple years old. I right. don't really remember what he was like. But when, we, when I grew up in San Francisco, almost all of my parents' friends were Russian Jews who had emigrated from Shanghai or, in some cases, Beijing to come to the United States, almost all of them. They all spoke Russian. They, they were all part of the same circle. They weren't all Jewish. A couple of them were Russian Orthodox, but they all described in one way or another, they described my father as the life of the party. Wow. He was, a wow. He, was wow. he was apparently just, you know, I knew him as a kind gentleman, incredibly sweet, one of the kindest people I had ever known, and I wow. loved that about him. But I knew him as very subdued. I certainly, I could barely mm. imagine the guy they were describing. And so I sort of by reverse engineering concluded that something that had happened to him during the years of imprisonment kind of squeezed the life out of him. Yeah. So he my was goodness. no longer the person that I imagined they described or that my mother had married. Um, so that that's part of why I really never got very far in it, finding out anything from him about that. It was simply that he was not going to be talkative. As, as far as my mother goes, when I would start to ask her about Harbin or her life in, in there was a place, Diren, who I don't remember if, I, if Diren is in Manchuria or if it's in Japan. I know that she spent summers in part of Japan Oof. and I know that she loved the Japanese and that she never really blamed them for imprisoning my father. I often asked her, you know, why didn't you resent them? And I never got anywhere. Is Diren, is Diren also known as Dalian? Is, it, if, if it's Dalian, I think it's the former Manchuria. No, no, D-A-I-R-E-N, not Dalian. So Diren is also, I think Diren is also sometimes now said as Dalian. Dalian. I yeah. see. And I think where is it? I think exactly. it's, well, it's, it's, it's in China, in, Man, in Manchuria, or, or maybe at that time called Manchu Kuo, maybe. Yeah. Um, if it's the same place, I think they're often spelled, um, in, in the place is often spelled different ways. Right. In any case, she also wasn't particularly talkative about those years. And when I would ask her, she would say, Oh, it's not interesting. Oh, wow. Not you interesting. Know, wow. Just cut I you off. She would wow. And I think I also have to blame myself. My curiosity was a little shallow. I just, I have become enormously curious about world history. Generally, I just absolutely oh. love to know what happened you know, what are the different perspectives <laughs> on what happened? But when I was growing up, I did, I was curious about mathematics. I wanted to know what was the real meaning of an imaginary number? Why was Euler's forum, a formula, e to the i pi equals minus one? Why was that true? 
why were certain geometric principles correct? That was my curiosity. And the limited exposure I had to history was in the form of really very inept teachers. I had some in a, in a public school that wasn't all that great and that lost its accreditation shortly after I graduated from high school. I had a couple of really good English and math teachers, but my history teacher was pathetic. I still remember his name was Mr. Troy. And I doubt the famous Mr. Troy. The famous <laughs> Mr. Troy. Uh, and if he's alive, I want him to know that he almost killed the curiosity of generations of kids about American history. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I didn't, and on top of all that, my sense of chronology has always been weak. My sense of direction is weak. I, I don't have a great sense of, <laughs> of events. An aptly named fellow, an aptly named fellow. <laughs> loving, <laughs> loving the Virginia. Um, <laughs> That's true. That's true. I never thought of Mr. Troy as being ironically named. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but okay, so let's. You said a few. You you adverted to your mother's relationship to your father. Are you happy to tell us more about that, or are you not? No, I wouldn't mind. I mean, she apparently had a, a real crush. I don't know what what we call it these days, but she she had fallen in love with an Italian doctor when she was in her late teens. I don't really know what he was doing in Harbin, but she fell in love with him and decided she wanted to follow him to the ends of the earth. He was going back to Rome and she wanted to go to Rome with him. And she had graduated from some good high school, I guess, and was admitted to the medical school in Milan, I think. And she was eager to join him in Italy. My father and my mother's father, I, I, I call him Dedushka, my grandfather, conspired to prevent her from doing this. I mean, she had apparently booked passage on, on, a, on a ship. It was in, it was not the safest thing in the world during those days, apparently to travel across the across the ocean, um, but they kept her from going and she was crushed and resented it and continued a correspondence with him for apparently decades. Saved oh the my letters, goodness. Saved the letters in a, in a little box that my brother and I found after she had died. Um, and it was quite a, you know, I don't think it was consummated, but it was a passionate, emotionally passionate affair. And I realized probably that my father knew that he wasn't the love of my mother's life. Oh, my goodness. Um, nonetheless, adored her and never blamed her for having been, you know, having been drawn to this other guy. Um, and I thought again, in hindsight, if it is something I had ever been able to get my mother to talk about, it would have been exciting. His name, I think, my it was Primo was Levi. <laughs> what was, what no, was, was not, not well known. His, uh, his name was Alyosha. And my mother named my, my brother, my late and lovely early and too, too soon deceased brother, 
Alexander, although we always called him Shurka, but he was named after this guy that my mother loved. And apparently that didn't, well, I say apparently it didn't bother my father. Maybe it bothered the hell out of him. I don't know. But you I were born thought. in Shanghai in a Bronte novel. <laughs> well, it was uh, quite a novel, yeah. I mean, okay. Okay, so there's a bit of a bookend that I I said chiasmus, but I think probably bookend is better. Are you Jewish? Yeah, oh, very much so. I don't, okay. I'm not all that, all that uh, I'm not particularly observant, um, and I don't always fast on Yom Kippur. Um, but at the end of various conversations of Friday night, my friends and I say to each other, Shabbat Shalom. Okay. So you can, yeah. you are Jewish and you consider yourself Jewish. Um, you were born in a time of great darkness for Jews and for others around the world, but let's say Jews particularly. Do you think another such dark time is upon us? Do you think the next 25 or so many years, you, 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 you choose the window of time, will be as good for the Jewish people as the last 25 I, I, or whatever else you what you wish to say. It's going to be a terrible time. I mean, I think mm. for all kinds of reasons. I, I think that the the deep undercurrent of anti-Semitism throughout the world is now rising again to the surface. Mm. I think the forces of fascism and autocracy and and uh, sort of violent prejudice are rising again. I think that what we've seen in Orban in Hungary and and Trump here uh, is all part of a, of a terrible, dark movement. And I think it's being exacerbated by the way in which Netanyahu and the IDF's pursuit of retaliation against the horrible attacks by Hamas on October 7th um, is exacerbating all of that. I think it's giving additional license to anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. I think Israel will have less allies on the world stage. And as Israel has less allies, Jews will have more enemies. I think it is a likely scary and dark time, whatever happens in the elections here. And I think something like 70% of the nations in the world are having major elections in the coming year, and I don't have terribly much hope for most of them. Take our own election. I mean, who knows exactly what will happen, but there's no way that Trump and the horrible and the horrible following he has stirred will simply go quietly into that good night if he loses. So the scenarios that I envision that are all very dark for the country, for democracy, for the rule of law, and among other things, for Jews, uh, the prospects aren't good. And so whether we are going to enter another period like the 1920s, 30s, and the like, I don't know. I do know that I've learned a great deal more about that period than I used to know. I mean, I, I, I love Rachel Maddow's um, prequel, and both as a as a podcast and as a, as a book, I've learned a great deal about how, you know, the America first movement and the, the fact that we nearly entered the war on the side of the Nazis rather than the other way around. Uh, mm. All of that is, is very 
present to me. And I think my being Jewish makes it all the more, more visceral than it otherwise might be. The lawsuit that has been filed recently against Harvard by a group of Jewish students focusing on Harvard University's alleged history of anti-Semitism. Uh, I haven't read it in detail, but one of my colleagues, uh, whom I trust quite a bit, says that he thinks that is so strong a complaint that it is likely to lead to a settlement rather than to Harvard trying to defend itself. All of that is part of the surrounding atmosphere that, I, that I'm breathing every day now. So I do think it's a dark time. And not only for Jews. I mean, my sympathies obviously run to, I'm worried about the future for LGBTQ people, for Palestinians, for all kinds of groups. I'm, although my heart is very much with, with the, the Jewish state, the more I learn about its history over the last century, the more guilty I feel as a Jew about how Israeli Jews have treated and subordinated and and mistreated Palestinians and treated them as less than fully equal members of the human community. So not a great time. Picking up on that just a little more, uh, and without, without focusing over much on Israel, unless you'd like to, um, when I heard you answer the question, it, and unsurprisingly to my ears, as I am familiar with some of your writing and some of your tweeting, you're a very active tweeter with almost one and a half million followers. Um, it seems to me that you locate the specter of anti-Semitism, specifically anti-Semitism. Um, in your response just now, you locate the specter of anti-Semitism, the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the popular, rather populist, fascistic, right inspired or right-wing political movements of the day. You mentioned Viktor Orban of, of Hungary, sort of the, the demagogue of the EU. You mentioned Trump, the unlikable fellow of the United States. Um, do you perceive there to be a left-wing anti-Semitism that surprises you? And in your opinion, is it unjustified or justified? Well, I do think that like many other forms of marginalization and otherization and bigotry, anti-Semitism comes from the extremes of both right and left. <laughs> it doesn't particularly surprise me that there has been communist anti-Semitism as well as fascist anti-Semitism. Right now, the particular composition of the left wing anti-Semitism kind of, I don't know that I should say it surprises me, but the way in which young people, including my own nephew and others that I know, are feel particularly aggrieved by what they think of as a false liberalism. Liberals congratulate themselves at least according to this vision of things, they right. congratulate themselves on their open-mindedness, their inclusiveness, their praise for diversity. And at the same time, they're blind to the way in which they and, and people they support do things that are at 
at best blind to the to the evil they inflict on on indigenous peoples, Native Americans, uh, the Vietnamese, the, the Palestinians. You know, it, it's it's as though it's as though a lot of liberals say that right wingers are terrible in how they put down blacks or somebody else, but we liberals are are enlightened, and yet the whole liberal project of of it has been a kind of colonial one of colonializing peoples. I am not being very articulate, but the main the main point is that that when I see kids at Harvard with whom I tend to identify as fellow liberals and people who ought to be seeing Trump and his ilk as the source of main of the main threat to our survival as a as a as a free people. When I see them saying, no, Biden and, and his sidekick Netanyahu, they're every bit as threatening. They're just more hypocritical. I mean, the degree to which they were upset by Biden's embrace of Netanyahu, and I was upset by it as well, that somewhat surprises me. I, it creates a, a, an apparent symmetry that doesn't feel quite right. I mean, it's like if you, if you think about Charlottesville and that disgusting statement by by Trump that there were good people on both sides. I think of there as being a kind of fundamental asymmetry in in the real sources of subordination and domination and prejudice, and yet that asymmetry in which, in my view, the right wing and populist movements and fascists are principally responsible is balanced by a lot that one can point to from the left and the intolerance of the left and the degree to which people on the left often want to silence their opponents and can't stand being confronted with alternative points of view. All of, all of that sort of tears me up I would like it to be cleaner and neater and more one-sided than it feels like it actually is. Okay. I, You're going to have a hell of a time editing that into something coherent. Oh, I don't edit. I don't edit. The, oh, okay. um, right. which, which I think should, should, should give you great relief. No, I'm listening to you very carefully. And I think I listen, I think I hear the, your response as coming from a number of different places, which is, um, understandable. I, I, I think you're making a personal response. I think you're making a, a response that reflects a kind of longitudinal understanding of self. Um, and also, I think you're making a response that reflects your current political understanding. So I, I, uh, I think the, I think the coherence of your response is there. And I think you're trying to, I think you're trying to, I hear you as navigating a a fine line um, as as among a number of impulses and inputs. Um, um, so I'm empathetic to your response, actually. Um, all right, so let's fast forward from, let's turn off the anti-Semitism question for a second. <laughs> fast okay. forward from Shanghai to California. You're a math whiz. Uh, you uh, are not enjoying history, thanks to the lamentable Mr. Troy. You are admitted to Harvard and go there at the age of 16. 
And then there is some lore. This will be another sort of bookendy kind of inquiry. There is some lore. You go to Harvard. You are in the English class. You'll 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 clean up the story. But you're in an English class. You're in a literature class. You uh, are invited by the instructor, professor. I don't know who by whom to write an essay of some critical uh, uh, nature. Uh, and you do so, you intentionally make the essay a kind of balderdash, a kind of nonsense, but instead of being, uh, instead of failing the, 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 the assignment or being downgraded, you win a prize uh, for greatest of all possible essays for that particular semester or whatever it is. And then you say to yourself, this is just bunk. I'm going to go major in, I think it was applied math in the end, um, graduating at the young age of 19 or 20, whatever it is. Not um, applied math. I, I was always dismissive of applied math. This was abstract algebraic. Abstract topic. math. Thank you. Thank you. So, yes, never mind the applied math. <laughs> right. To be dismissed uh, among the cognoscenti. So, uh, is the story true? And I'm sort of coming to a point in a second. Uh, but first, we have to establish if the story is true and, and if there's any sort of change in the story that you'd like to, no, to it make. It is true. The professor was Gerard. He was a visiting professor from Stanford. It was an assignment in comparative literature. Um, I chose to write something on the parallels, as I recall, between um, Gregor Samsa, the beetle that, that he had become, uh, and something else. I, oh, death of a salesman. I, I was tried to show that structurally. Gregor Samsa is a Kafka character uh, yeah. from the Metamorphoses. Yeah. From Metamorphoses. There was a parallel between Willie Loman and, and the Kafka character, Gregor Samsa. Brilliant! Well, I didn't think it was brilliant. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought there's something there, but I expected someone to say that's. That's silly. That's shallow. Try again. Instead, I got the prize for the best essay, and out of hundreds, some of them were graduate students or something. And I thought, not so much that it's bunk, but anything where there is so little objective way of saying what's true and what's valuable is is not going to satisfy me. I mean, I I have always Always, that sounds pretentious because I probably didn't know who Plato was when I first thought of myself in retrospect as a Platonist. But I've always thought there were real essences that that when we say, uh, you know, that uh, that the ratio of the circumference of a circle to the diameter is pi or whatever, that that reflects a reality about the universe even more basic than than cosmological facts about black holes, that, that there is an ultimate truth and that that, for me, has spiritual significance. That's why, among other things, I could never think of myself as an atheist. It's not that I have an anthropomorphic idea of God, but I do think there are these ultimate truths, and some of them are moral truths. That is, it's not the case that the only truths are truths about equilateral triangles. There are there are there's evil in the world. There are things that are evil to do. 
torturing a baby in order to squeeze some pleasure out of it is evil, period. So when you enter an, an area of discourse that, in which there aren't such absolute truths, in which it's a matter of opinion, it's, you know, it, is Willie Loman really like Gregor Samsa? That just could never satisfy me enough. That's why I decided at that fairly early stage to major in mathematics and to leave the comparative literature and stuff aside. I wish in hindsight that I had made up for the deficiencies of Mr. Troy by learning more about literature and history and geography at that stage, because it turns out there are more truths in the world than simply the things that are at the bottom of which you can write QED. But somehow I was more binary in those days in the sense of thinking there's a difference between those realms in which there are true answers and those in which it's all a matter of opinion. Okay. So, so, so that's why I went into pure math. Well, okay. So, so, so now I'm sort of coming to it. This is sort of the setup and um, I think it won't take long for you to figure out where I'm going. You decide that this professor Gerard's response to your essay leads you somewhere else. You got to go to math. Could have been physics, something, but you go to math. You're in the search of understandable, sort of synthesizable, definable truths. And then somehow you get to the law. And then after early enormous success in the law, you pile one more success on top of the previous successes by publishing the blockbuster treatise volume one of the American constitutional law, which, and you'll correct me to the extent you want, is a kind of attempt to synthesize and make sense of all of the corpus until then of American constitutional law and to draw lines that suggest more permanent truths or more lasting truths. You spend a time also advocating in front of the Supreme Court and teaching constitutional law. And then there comes a time because your treatise, again, treatise volume number one of, I think it was supposed to be two volumes, but treatise volume number one ends up being the most cited text in legal, uh, American legal text in half a century plus. Quickly, it's a blockbuster achievement. There is anticipated, hotly anticipated, another volume. And you, you revise the first volume several times. I think the third edition comes out in 1999. And then you call time, I think in 2005, in an article in Greenbag, you say, Greenbag is a kind of a, for those of our listeners who don't know, is a kind of a, it's, it's what you probably would hope all actual American legal journals ought to be. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journal of ideas, um, generally favoring well-known uh, writers, professors, uh, in shorter form, you publish an article in Greenbag saying that you're not going to finish the project of the American Constitutional Law Legal Treatise that, um, let me not put words in your mouth, you'll correct me as I get it wrong, um, that, that the project of trying to find a scheme, a line through, a through line, um, is over. Um, did there come a time when you came to see the law to which you devoted your life 
as you had comparative literature? Um, and did there come a time when you might have found the Supreme Court to be Professor Gerard? Um, or is that suggestion too much? Um, this is not just a game of your opinion versus mine, their opinion versus the other guy's opinion. What happened? Great questions. Let me turn the clock back a little, make a couple of minor factual adjustments. The treatise was originally, and I think importantly, a single volume effort to synthesize it all in one volume. Okay, thank you. First edition in 1978 was one volume. The second edition in 1988 was one volume. It was the same thing updated and made more sophisticated. The third edition is the one where I had too much to say to put it in, in okay. my head. I did okay. volume one, which was all about certain aspects of the Constitution. Okay. It was volume two that I decided fuck it, I'm not going to do volume <laughs> two, 2005 okay. comes, I write this, Steve Breyer writes to me saying, we're all waiting for volume yep. two, what happened? And just I as say, Stephen Breyer, yeah. Just as Steve Breyer, um, and I write to, you know, a Dear Steve letter. Another long, San Francisco Jew, by the way, yeah. A long, long letter, um, basically saying, here's why I'm not doing volume two. And that letter gets published in the green bag or something like that, right? That is, people take it as an interesting fact. And there was a, actually a New York Times story about how unusual it is that someone's decision not to write something becomes newsworthy. And it was. That went to it my head a little bit. I thought, oh, it must be important if my decision <laughs> not to write this is newsworthy. Okay. Okay. So that's sort of the uh, the chronology <laughs> slightly corrected. Thank you. Um, additional element I need to add is that at no point that is you made it sound as though the transition from mathematics to law was kind of seamless or obvious. It okay. was very problematic. I mean, the, the problem for me with mathematics was twofold. First, I was very good at it, but not a genius. And I knew what mathematical genius looked like because yeah. my classmate Saul Kripke was a genius. <laughs> he invented a new form of logic. Some of it he invented when he was a high school sophomore. Uh -huh. It blew me away. And I thought, I'm not, if I'm not going to make a major contribution in this field, why am I doing it? He died, he died a little over a year ago. And so, so I dropped it partly because I, I just wasn't good enough at it. Yep. I never ceased to find it beautiful or important. The other thing, however, is that even at that early stage, I was sufficiently advanced in the kinds of mathematics I was doing that I couldn't talk to anybody about it, not to my girlfriend, not to most of my friends. Mm. It was all very esoteric. And I'm sort of a social character. I'm quite shy, but on the other hand, I like to interact with people and I like mm. to make a difference in the real world. And when I corrected your reference to applied mathematics, part of what I meant to be underscoring is that the kind of math I was doing wasn't going to make an obvious difference in the real world. I wasn't helping feed the hungry. I wasn't helping to bring justice 
to the uh, to the mistreated. I wanted to make a difference in the real world and to do it in an area where, though I might not be a genius, I was damn good and could make a difference. Mm. So that's the shift to law. When I do shift to law, at first I'm a little disillusioned because mm. at first I expect it to be. I mean, what appealed to me about law was the combination of narrative of things that are surreal and bizarre, like weird rules, rules that don't make necessarily logical sense, but that make historical sense. Um, the combination of, of narrative, logic, um, justice, and it has a structure. Legal rules are not just strings of words. They, they're interestingly cobbled together. They, they have an architecture. And I was always interested in the structural aspect of mathematical systems and very much interested in structure in the world of law. So that mm. one of the things in, in mathematics that I specialized in was algebraic topology, the study of mm. what's the difference between a donut and a sphere? What's the difference between a surface that has holes and a surface that doesn't, which are the mm. things that are invariant under various transformations. That intrigued me, and I drew parallels between that and the structure of mathematical arguments. There are certain math there are certain of, of sorry of legal arguments, there are certain legal mm -hmm. arguments that, that get the structure wrong. And then one of the main articles I wrote it's called Structure and Relationship. No, no, it was called um, Taking taking Legal Structure Series or something like that. Anyway, I had all sorts of legal interests that, that mm. paralleled my mathematical interests. And the idea that, that law was not as precise as I wanted it to be, which bothered me at first. Are you talking about taking text and structure seriously? Very good, taking text and structure seriously. You've really done your homework, Michael. That's that's good. That's the that's the article, and it was about things like uh, the treaty clause and why that why NAFTA yeah. and WTO failed. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was it was the mid '90s, so it would have been exactly that. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, it, the fact that that law didn't. The fact that law was a little fuzzier than math, which bothered me at first, wasn't fatal to the enterprise. So that when I finally decided in 2005 that it was no longer time for me to try to figure out how to synthesize it all, it wasn't that I had suddenly become a realist and had realized that my effort to make it all into a formal Just pausing, pausing here for a second. There is a concept for our listeners called American Legal Realism which is a kind of responsa to the uh, earlier idea um, of American law, which was dominated by um, uh, a dean called uh, Austin, I believe, a professor uh, and, and dean at Austin, uh, at Harvard Law School called Austin, who insisted that there was a, uh, a seamless pyramidal structure of American all, law. And then, all logic and reasoning. And all logic and reason, which was, which was, idiotic. And then the response, which was perhaps pressed of American legal realism, was the idea that uh, it's all political, that just the, the political makeup of the, of the judicial panel of whatever level you're going to yeah. 
right. uh, visit will determine sort of immediately and ex ante the outcome of the case. And so Professor Tribe is sort of saying, I'm I'm neither one nor the other. That's just I just want to translate that for our our audience here. Exactly right. I've never thought it was all a matter of logic, and I've never thought it was all a matter of what you ate for breakfast and, and you know, who's, <laughs> who's, who's ox was being gored. It was always a complicated mix of logic, reasoning, experience, history, interests. Um, yeah, in fact, in fact, that, 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 if I just say, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. I was going to say, I continued to believe and believe to this day that law has a certain integrity, that legal reasoning is not... Uh, is not just all made up after the fact to rationalize things, but that it has structure. It has it has a logic. It is not the case, as John Roberts famously quipped at one point, that we're just calling balls and strikes as though it's a kind of passive matter in which what you bring to a legal dispute has nothing to do with where you come out. But on mm. the other hand, um, on the other hand, that is not the very opposite of that either. It's, it's a complicated mix. What led me in 2005 to think that the enterprise of completing the treatise just didn't make sense was that constitutional law itself was in a state of such unrest, flux, deep division over fundamental premises that really only a work that was much more overtly political, philosophical than what I was engaged in which was mostly trying to show what the coherent structure of the doctrine was, that yeah. only something that was much more openly immersed in the political dimension was worth doing. And there was so much else that was worth doing. There were cases that needed to be brought. There were injustices that needed to be addressed. There were threats to democracy. There were, you know, so if I spent the rest of my life perfecting this doctrinal model, I would miss the opportunity to really make a difference. The very no, same to, to make make a very fine point of it. If you had spent, did you also have the notion at any time, at that time, that if you had in fact spent many more years perfecting the doctrinal model, would you have disbelieved it? Would it have been an error? Did you come to a point where you? you lost faith in that idea? I suppose the answer is yes to some extent. I lost faith in the, not in the possibility of bringing doctrinal coherence into a situation, but of the degree to which that was the thing that was important to do, that, that, that somehow what was missing was doctrinal coherence. What was missing instead was a deep enough commitment to, to justice to, to moral outcomes. We had courts that were much, whose values I no longer respected so much. And I wanted to move, I, I wanted to be able to find ways of moving the actions of courts within a system that was necessarily imperfect in directions that I thought were both more defensible logically, but more importantly, more f faithful to what I thought was decency. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That is a real bell. We are going to play Speed Round, which is one of the games we have on Finally. Just to change the music, we'll get back to the serious stuff in a second. 
Okay. First speed round with Professor Larry Tribe, the legend and the giant. Sushi or sashimi, Professor Tribe? Sushi or sashimi? Sushi. Salmon or tuna? Salmon. Do you eat tuna, sushi? I do. Maguro, toro, otoro, or chutoro? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. I, okay, I, I like all the toros. They're nice, fatty. Okay, you like the you like any kind of toro, fine, any kind of toros. Okay, um, do you have a nominee for best judge never to sit on the United States Supreme Court? No. Is there a non-U.S. judge you admire especially greatly, living or dead? Yeah. Yes, two: um, Rosalia Bella of Canada and and Aron Barak of Israel. Aaron Barak, the John Marshall of Israel. Um, right. I have, Rosalia is a new one for me. I'll have to research her. Uh, why do you admire her? Can you give her two words on Rosalia? Well, she she ha has a, a deep understanding of the limits and potential of law and a fundamental commitment to decency and morality. Fantastic. Wow. See, this is the thing about Professor Tribe. He can go on for about 40 minutes, and then he can just bazing with a right hook and just gets you right. That's what, what made him a great advocate in the Supreme Court. Okay, carrying on. Who, knowing that you're very much in the mix, but we're sitting here, it's January 15th. In a few hours, we'll begin the Iowa caucus. Who, this will not be published until after the Iowa caucus is over, who will be president in 2025? Oh my God. This is a quick version. You can, you're allowed to demur. You're allowed to say, I can't give a quick version. I think Joe Biden will be president in 2025. Okay. Is it your prediction that Donald Trump will be convicted on any of the current indictments? Yes. Federal or Georgia or both? Both. Will he serve prison time? Yes. Is your question. Do you have any not private... A, but not if he is elected president. Okay, if he's elected president, will he also evade Georgia imprisonment? Probably, even though he has no technical limits with respect, you know, no technical ability to pardon himself, the law will no longer constrain him at all. If he is president, he will be dictator. I love that you are happily exceeding the traditional bounds of the speed round, and I credit you for it. Do you have, easier, easier question, do you have a private passion or interest or hobby? Easier question. Do you have a private passion or interest or hobby about which you don't normally have occasion to speak? No. Okay. Although, I mean, I, I have things I would love to have a private passion or interest or hobby in. Give like me one. I, lo I love skiing, but I'm bad at it. And, <laughs> and it would not be safe for me to do it now, but I used to love the, the way the wind would just swirl by as I would try to go down a slope that was too too difficult for me. You were an avid skier, perhaps not a gifted one, but an avid skier. Well, semi-avid, very non-gifted. But it's downhill. Been years, it's been years since I've skied downhill. Yeah. Anything else like that? Anything else on your list apart from skiing like that? Similar. I'm sorry. Anything similar to that? Not in addition to skiing? No, not nothing similar. Okay. Do you cook? Oh, uh, no. Okay. I, 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 I sigh because it would be good if I did. It would make life much easier for Elizabeth. And she's a wonderful cook. 
Elizabeth is your wife. She's my partner. She's your partner. Thank you. For all practical purposes, my wife. For all practical purposes, your wife, but your partner. Okay. All right. Back to the serious stuff. Um, although in a lighthearted sense, um, in a lighthearted octave, um, you were supposed to be a Supreme Court justice. I understand I'm saying that a little bit strongly, but um, I won't be the first person uh, to say that. I will not have been the first person to have said that. Um, you were on the short list of uh, every Democratic nominating type of person, including presidents. And then came Robert Bork. Right. And you'll tell the story differently. Um, Robert Bork was a nominee for the Supreme Court, nominated by Ronald Reagan. And um, you um, actually, wait, was he nominated by Ronald Reagan? Yeah, he was nominated. Yeah, he was. Reagan. Yeah, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. After for a second, I doubted myself. How old so was he, I? Right, right, right. So he was he was he had been Solicitor General. Anyway, so he's he's a he's a of a certain stature, he's nominated. And the Democrats in the Senate, if I'm not mistaken, some I, I may be um truncating the story improperly, but they call you, they say, Can you help us explain why this guy should not be affirmed? Um, actually more complicated. Biden Kennedy was certain he should not be affirmed and called me to you know, to get further advice. Biden was open, open-minded about it. He said, Larry, I'm not sure what our role should be when we are reviewing someone who is obviously talented, non-corrupt, quite qualified. Should we take that person's substantive views about the Constitution into account? Is that an appropriate role for us to play? And well, I had published a book called God Save Court, where I argued right. that that was an appropriate role. And Biden asked me basically to convince him of that because I think that was his impulse, but he was not sure. And then it went from there. He wanted my help in figuring out how to question Bork. I played Bork in the murder boards at Biden's house. He, they said that I was a better Bork than Bork himself in the sense that I wasn't so scary when I answered questions. But because I both helped prepare Biden to question Bork, and because I was the first major substantive witness against Bork, people like uh, Orrin Hatch and Alan Simpson told me, too bad you did this, Larry. We would love to have seen you and Bob Bork on the court, but now you'll never be there because we will never let you get there. Right, and Orrin Hatch was a great admirer of yours, but you were you were told to know in certain terms, and so and the Senate was the Senate Democrats were told no in certain terms that your nomination should it ever come to pass would would be dead on arrival. You're never it's never going to see the light of day. You'll never be considered, and so so right. there's this there's this moment in in time uh, where you either made a decision or you understood the decision had been made for you, and you can tell us if you'd like. Um, where you're going to be um, a different kind of great man, um, and I think of I think of you and Al Gore perhaps in sort of similar in similar ways. He's a guy who maybe should have been president. He's a guy who got very very close. I can't say 
we can't say, one can't say you got quite that close, but you certainly would have been on the shortest of short lists um, for, for a Supreme Court justice nomination had you not participated in the borking of Bork. I'm asking a personal question. You can answer it as much as you'd like or as little as you'd like. Part of what I try to do in this podcast is understand the inner lives of special people. How often have you thought of that decision? How often to, to be of service to the Democrats in the Senate to oppose the Bork nomination? How often have you considered it? How often have you maybe regretted it? How often have you wondered what your life might have been? Um, or is it something you put to bed right away? <laughs> this could be a very short answer. It, it seems like a, I mean, people who know you and know of your history know that you ought to have been on the Supreme Court. And but for that experience, but for that participation in that, in that um, defense or assault um, in the Senate, you would have been nominated. Do you think about it? Do you regret it? Do you I've wonder about it? it? I've had no regrets. I was I was quite clear when I made the decision to testify that I was making a life choice, that probably I was thereby ruling out the possibility of playing a role as a justice myself. But I talked to my daughter primarily, Carrie. I said, you know, Carrie, do you think I should do this? And basically it was like, Dad, do you, how would you feel about yourself if you didn't? And I said, well, I would feel shitty. I mean, I, I know mm. that he is nominated. I mean, if he is confirmed, he will hurt lots of things that I care about. He will hurt what I think of as the living constitution. He, he will take rights away from women. Roe v. Wade will be overruled. Of course, it's been overruled anyway, but it lasted a hell of a lot longer because he wasn't on the court. Mm. Um, when I testified for Kennedy rather than Bork, I did it believing that all kinds of rights that I thought were important. For Justice Anthony Kennedy. Anthony Kennedy. I, I did it thinking that will help turn the, the curve. I mean, today is Martin Luther King Day, so it's hard not to think in terms of the arc of history bending toward justice. I mm. thought, and I was helping it bend toward justice. The fact that I wouldn't be a justice didn't bother me much. Not that it wouldn't have been fun. It might have been fun and I might have done a little good, but I would have been dissenting more often than not. I think that the large number of important students that I've, you know, helped to teach and move into the world, Elena Kagan, Barack Obama, Adam Schiff, Jamie Raskin, they've made a huge difference in the world. Some as judges, some one as president, others as members of Congress. And the thousands of students whose names you may not know have made a huge difference. I've made a better impact on the world, I think, from where I sat than I would have had I been on the court, mostly dissenting. So I don't regret it. And, you know, those robes are impressive, but hell, you get used to that quickly. And I think that the life of a Supreme Court justice in a world where the Supreme Court is turning in a very sour direction would have been a pretty 
unpleasant life. I'm glad to have spared it. Wow. What a strong statement. Um, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, I'm thinking now of Uncertain Justice, a book you published almost 10 years ago. It was your, there's a bit of a symmetry that you published it nine years ago and you had at that time, Chief Justice Roberts had been your former student to, na- to name another former student. Um, he was appointed to the job in 2005. So you kind of reviewed the first nine years of his, um, of his tenure. Uh-huh. And in that uh, book, um, I'm struck one, because I, one, one of the things I was going to say before, and I was interrupting you and I decided it was better not to interrupt you. I was going to say I before that. Co-authored with another former student who's made a huge impact on the law, Joshua Matz. Right. Who's a practicing lawyer as well as uh, a former uh, public servant, I believe. So you, right. in that book, I, you made, I think one of the through lines as I observe your, your body of work and the way you talk and the way I think you think, um, sort of taken together, one of, one of the, the chief through lines is something like, it's a little bit more complicated than most people think, right? Um, it's sort of what I was going to say earlier when I was about to interrupt you. I, I think you are someone who insists on seeing the complexity of the thing and considering the complexity of the thing. It's part of, um, yeah, it's part of what I think you believe is your duty to teach and to, right. and to point out. Um, it's the most consistent through line I've been able to pick up as I have reviewed your body of work. And certainly that shows up in uncertain justice, right? So you, you're, you're, you take it upon yourself. The sort of stated aim of that book is to see what's happened since chief justice Robert has, has so-called taken over, um, the chief justice, not take over the court, but plays a role. There's a tradition of calling it the such and such court after the last name of the chief justice. And you write about Citizens United, which is a uh, 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 the the money in politics case. You write about affirmative action, gun control, religion cases, and you note that there's a a general rightward trend in the courts' movement since Roberts' ascendancy, with some exceptions. There's a NASA v. Nelson, the privacy versus security case, in which Scalia dissents and said there ought to be. Uh, some more um, privacy versus security, I believe. Um, what I wanted to ask you is, do you think that that rightward trend, that rightward lurch that I, which is not pure, it is complex, that's the point of uncertain justice, but do you think that trend has largely continued? Do you think that Roberts now or then, in hindsight or now, in as compared to the court today, is a surprise moderate and moderating influence, thinking of perhaps his concurrence in Dobbs, um, which overturned Roe v. Wade utterly. Um, what's your, what's your view since sort of that you mentioned your sort of what your life would have been like as a Supreme court justice have things in, from your frame gotten worse recently? Much, I mean, much, much worse. I mean, there's no question that the addition that the fact that Ruth Ginsburg stayed as long as she did and the fact that McConnell kept the Scalia seat open as long as he did, 
all combined to create a very different, dramatically farther right, more predictable partisan court with the three Trump appointees so effectively marginalizing Roberts that he no longer, that it no longer makes sense to call it the Roberts court, despite the convention of naming the court after the chief justice. I don't know if it's going to be in hindsight, the Gorsuch court or the Kavanaugh court. And a lot of course turns on. You mean in the same sense that people sometimes call it the Brennan court, though Brennan was not the chief justice. He was the most influential justice by some lights of the time. You think there'll be that kind of, that kind of nomenclature later. I think that's right. Although some of it is, you know, the future is, is not wholly determined in my view, strange things could happen. The sudden and unexpected death of Scalia. I mean, that made a huge difference. All sorts of things made a difference. So you did there come a time when you tried to persuade Justice Ginsburg to resign? No, I I never thought it was. I never saw that as my role. Mm -hmm. When people like Erwin Chemerinsky publicly called on her to resign, I thought part of me said Erwin, who's another of my former students and yes, a lovely fellow and I think happily quite influential. um, I, I thought part of me thought that's pretty courageous and ballsy. Part of me thought that's incredibly arrogant. And what the f- <laughs> who asked you? She certainly knows the considerations pro and con. You know, maybe you will stiffen her back and make her less likely to resign. I can't uh-huh. see the point. Oh wow! I do wish she had resigned sooner, and I don't regret not having publicly called on her yeah. to do so. It's yeah. just the way it is. Yep. Yep. Um... Okay, so it's gotten much worse, and then, and then just sort of picking up on that, because um, I, I I did expect you to say that things have gotten much worse. I mean, it's certainly consistent with your public uh, commentary these days. Um, it would be exciting if I'd been able to say something else, and it is possible. I mean, I do think it is possible that this right wing court will save the republic. That is, it they after all have ruled against Trump in a number of critical cases. It may well be that the one thing that stands between a fascist dictatorship with no limits and some semblance of the rule of law will ironically be the Trump court. Okay, damn it. Um, We've been dancing around it for too long. Um, uh, I I give in. Let's talk about Donald Trump. I was I was going to say to the extent I was actually have in my notes to the extent that you are willing to talk about Donald Trump, <laughs> but I guess you're willing. Um, let let's talk, let's let's lay it out. You know, this is your chance. You've had many, but let's lay it out at however much length you'd like. Um, look into your crystal ball. What is the risk of a second Trump presidency? What is the Assuming he wins the election and he is certified, what is the sort of minimum risk that you perceive practically? Um, And what are the maximum scary versions of the risk? Um, You said the word dictator. Um, We heard him say today or yesterday, just the other day, four more years and beyond. Um, In your own words, 
in your own estimation, what is the spectrum of risk that we're talking about for America, for the world? You know, I, I hate to beg off in the sense that I've been very candid about most things. And it's not that I'm reluctant to say what I think. I mean, I think what I believe is already contained in what I've written, what I've tweeted, what I've, yes. what I've said. I, I think... The maximum danger is that the American experiment in every meaningful way will come to an end and that all of the hopes and dreams of a more perfect union, more inclusive, more just, will be shattered for the foreseeable future and that we will live under a Hitler-like right-wing fascist regime and that it will last as long as Trump is alive and maybe, maybe as long as his successors are alive and God knows how they'll be selected. It's pretty obvious that that's the risk. What is the best possible outcome? I don't know, but I'm sure it has to do with how many cheeseburgers the guy eats and any number of other things. Oh, wow. Really, oh, know, wow. Any, okay. I don't have any special insight into. The reason I don't really want to kind of pontificate about this further, at least now, is that so much is undetermined. I mean, there are so many struggles that I think we have to maintain our willingness to engage in. We can't just give up on the ground that the odds, objectively speaking, are terrible. I don't want to overstate how hopeful things might be, and I don't want to understate. So I would rather, it's like, you know, it's a little pretentious to say it's like Wittgenstein's whereof one cannot speak, one should be silent, but... I'm not sure I can add, any, not sure I can add anything um, worth adding at the moment okay. by speculating and elaborating on the array of possibilities. I just want to okay. keep working. It's true. You have been you have been very forthcoming and very specific in, um, over time. I just wanted to give it a chance. All right. Then then let's turn to the comment you just made about the Supreme Court, the 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 so called right wing Supreme Courts perhaps being the last bastion, the last thing standing between something called us and something called the dictatorship. How, how might that obtain? How might that come to pass? Sure. Well, one of the things that might happen is that in the next five, six days, the DC circuit might reject the absurd and extreme and unwarranted claims of absolute immunity that the president has argued before it. And the U.S. Supreme Court, recognizing that there is no very good reason to even bother reviewing the case, will quickly deny certiorari and the trial before Chutkin will move forward more quickly than not. And once the former president is, as I suspect he will be in that case, found guilty of a series of very grave felonies, that itself will have unpredictable consequences for the future of the country. I think the court will have played a major role in making that possible, rather than as it could, uh, slow walking the case, essentially assuring that that case won't be tried to verdict until after the election, and therefore that the American people will be voting for or against Trump without yet knowing whether he's guilty of the wide range of felonies related to the attempt to steal the election that I think he is in fact probably guilty of. Mm. That's one thing the court could do. Another thing it could do, though this is much less likely, 
is could render it could render a decision in the case that's being argued on February 8th involving the uh, Colorado Supreme Court's disqualification yep. of the president. It could decide that case in a way that that is at least somewhat um, somewhat less political and partisan than some people are convinced it's bound to do. In other words, the obvious thing for it to do is to find some way of reversing the Colorado Supreme Court and putting that chapter of disqualification to bed. But it might not do that. Hmm. I don't think it's likely to simply affirm, but there are intermediate things it could do. And I don't really want to elaborate on them because I'm informally advising the lawyers in the case. So that's sort of, that's part of the future that is still unfolding, but there are ways the court could deal with controversies of that kind, both his disqualification and his immunity. And certainly when it reviews the convictions that I expect will, will emerge from one or more of these criminal trials, I think it could perform as a, as a court with some degree of fidelity to the law and affirm the convictions. There's very unlikely to be reversible error. And if he mm-hmm. is a convicted felon, that will matter. It will matter for the long run and whether it matters for his immediate future, one doesn't know. Okay. But the court will play an important role in all of that. Okay. Um, I think I'm getting the atmosphere about this topic. Um, I had, I had guessed you'd want to talk about it more, but I understand why not. uh, And I, and I accept it. Let's talk about another, another president, your former student, Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. to the extent that you're willing, can you grade his presidency? Was he a good president? Was he as good as you'd hoped? Was he better, less good as president? I don't feel I mean, one of the things that I love about having become an emeritus professor is I don't have to give grades anymore. And <laughs> okay. would never have felt really, I mean, maybe I could grade some presidencies from our distant past. I can certainly grade the Trump presidency. It was a round, fat F. The Barack presidency, I, I can't be objective about. I was so excited to see him win. I think he did a lot of good things. I wish he had done more to build up the party and to and to take you know to to increase the chance that that we didn't lose control of Congress. I think the Biden presidency is easier for me to grade. Not that I would give it a grade, but he's been a very successful president. I mean, he's gotten such an amount done compared to anyone but FDR and LBJ, certainly more than Obama ever did, although I feel closer to Obama as a person, I think. Um, So I I don't like grading presidents, but... But you you did. Um, uh, Look, I I, I haven't agreed with you. I think... um... It is interesting. It's interesting to see, um, you know, what one story I've heard about Rahm Emanuel, who is now ambassador to Japan. He, he was a, a Clinton guy. He was mayor of Chicago. I think congressman from the Chicago area as well. I think mayor of Chicago. And then uh, he was in the Obama administration-ish with Biden. 
uh, one story that I, or around, or around, or around, uh, <clears throat> around Obama, I should say, forgive me. Uh, one story I've heard about him is that, that many of the Obama acolytes, and this may just be lore, but I heard it from someone who was in a position to know, let's say, and so I'm repeating something that someone else told me, this, in fairness, was that there was a view among Obama's team that he was black Jesus, that, that when Biden would come into the room, uh, there was a dismissive attitude, not from Obama himself, but from the team, from the the 20-somethings, the 30-somethings, the 40-somethings, and that Rahm Emanuel would stick up for Biden, and that's why Biden <laughs> rewarded him later. I, I, do, I do get the impression, it is my opinion, not a political opinion, just a substantive one or observational one about substance, that Biden is far more effective as president, has achieved a lot more, um, cares a lot more about the job, um, and works a lot harder at the job, um, and does not. Oh, that, that I doubt. I mean, nobody don't works think so? harder at Obama. I think they both are very hardworking. Hmm. I think Biden's experience in the Senate and a combination of things that just worked out have enabled him to be a very effective president. But if efficacy as a president also is about the bully pulpit, is about how you project. And there's no question that Obama was an inspiring leader as president uh, and that Biden is less inspiring. I mean, I wish he could project his accomplishments more than he does. One of the reasons that he is as vulnerable as he is in the forthcoming election is that even people who love the guy like me tend to fall asleep when they hear him talking. And that's not good. It's not yeah, I agree. He certainly, he certainly, I mean, a, Obama must have been one of the best communicators to hold the office, and right. Biden might be right in the middle, I don't know, uh, of the pack. Um, anyway, so I, I onboard your, your view as to, as to the work ethic, um, to be sure. Um, but anyway, we're, we've, we've done great. We've, we've done our grading job. Um, let me return to your, let me to return to your pack of former students. Uh, you named a few who stand out as remarkably impactful, influential, special. Um, you've devoted your life to teaching and scholarship more than other pursuits, probably just in terms of time devoted and time spent. Were you able to tell with these remarkable people, Barack Obama, Kathleen Sullivan, I would add to the list, someone you've discussed publicly as one of your most cherished students, perhaps still uh, of your career. Were you able to tell at early stages and early ages that they were exceptional, these individuals, um, or did it become clear later? What have you learned about such, such people in, as a, just, Generally speaking, I'm sure there are exceptions, but such people as a professor of, of young people in their 20s, usually meeting them in their 20s, what have you learned about such people? Well, there's no one that I've taught who has had enormous public success about whom I would say, oh, that's a surprise. I mean, everyone, <laughs> everyone who's been amazingly successful, Roberts, Kagan, um, Obama, um, and in a slightly less dramatic way, Schiff and, and Raskin and, and a few others, um, they, they all were amazing when I had them as students. The converse isn't true. I mean, it's not the case that some that of my students 
the fact that you may never have heard of them or the fact that they have may have become villains rather than than heroes ted hmm. cruz let's say means that at the time they were my students i could have told you oh they will make nothing of themselves or they will be terrible ken chesborough is a good example i mean he's a villain he he helped he helped trump take down the he helped trump almost wage a successful coup i hope he will finally pay the price for it so but ken I chesborough i believe was a former student of yours who who recently pleaded guilty to uh, yeah. What, what was the actual crime conspiracy? What was the actual? Uh, I, I, I don't have it, but I. To certain aspects of the RICO conspiracy in Georgia. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. Okay. He a lot more, and I think he'll be convicted of other things later in other cases. But the main point that I want to make is, I don't think that I would have predicted when he was my research assistant. Oh, that's a that's a guy who's going to do terrible things in the future. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting on him in particular. You know, when I was when I was affiliated with you twenty years ago, um, I encountered him in in some I don't know either in 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 the course of working for you or in the course of doing something else. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember finding him extraordinarily dislikable and um, dislikable. Yeah, dis dislikable, and and in my opinion, untrustworthy. I remember feeling it, and also. He 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 took a step that I have more recently confirmed for myself, just because I saw his his guilty plea um, some weeks ago, right? Just just weeks ago, I saw his guilty plea, and I said, you know, I know this face, I remember this face, and I remember this name, and I confirmed for myself in my own private records the thing that he did that was not sort of uh, a major deal, but it was kind of a small act of nastiness. Um, it, what was that? Well, it was, um, I was, I don't know, probably 20, 21 at the time. I was trying some stuff and, and he was someone who was known to me and I was known to him and I sent him an email and, uh, this was a time when email servers were, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, email servers were very sensitive to reports of spam, like really super sensitive reports of spam. And he sent this email, which was a little bit out of the blue, but he was known to me and I was known to him to the spam report. We got a spam report, you know, for, for this particular email as he, he was the recipient he was, I think perhaps the only one who did it. And then I asked him, Hey, listen, I'm sorry you didn't like it, but could you unreport it <laughs> spam? Because I mean, I know you <laughs> personally and I'm allowed to send you an email. You're allowed to say you don't want it, but um, it was a perfectly polite email and he just didn't do it. It was just sort of a passive aggressive nastiness, small, small, Small beer, small item, but I was like, you know what? Yeah, it felt consistent with the feeling I got of him, and also not not trying to not you're, trying you're, to conspire to take over a country, but I felt I felt something about him. I think it's a it's a good point. I mean, I should have perhaps seen more than I did. I know that in the course of the years that I've known him, he's done a lot of nasty things to a former wife, all kinds of people. Mm. Maybe I should have seen that that he basically didn't have any moral compass. Mm. The fact is I did. So I'm just making the point. Yeah. I'm trying to suggest I don't have like a, a, a perfect um, success detector sure. or evil detector. Sometimes people who aren't all that great put something over on me. Um, 
but the people that I have, who have done great things are people in whom I saw greatness at the time. I didn't necessarily know what it was that would be their special talent. I mean, Obama in particular had incredible judgment and hmm. thoughtfulness when he was working as my research assistant, hmm. but I had no idea about his rhetorical skills, hmm. his, his soaring capacity to inspire hmm. until I heard his speech at the, at the Democratic National Convention. I thought, this is amazing. This Right, for Kerry. He spoke for Kerry, right? That was the speech that made him, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, yes, it was, Kerry was the nominee. Bob Shrum um, persuaded Kerry to have Obama as the as the speaker at the convention. Yeah, incredible. In that speech, you know, there is no blue America, no red America. Right, we have States. the purple America, yeah. And then he wrote that himself. It was not, it wasn't just beautifully delivered, it was beautifully conceptualized. Mm. Anyway, um, there are lots of people that I've had as students that I'm enormously fond of, proud of, who haven't become famous. And it's not as, you know, their lives are what they are. The fame is fleeting and not all the, that it's cracked up to be. And I'm very proud of them. So it's not as though I really don't want to create the impression that I've had these great names as students that you've heard of and, I either did or didn't know they'd be great. It's just that having taught thousands of people and made a difference in mm. their lives, hearing back from many of them, some of whom I frankly don't remember all that well, and others of whom have become my best friends, that apart from being a father and a grandfather is the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done. I mean, the students are like a like a vast array of, of children that I can feel proud of having watched them take flight. And I love that. The words of a, of a Rosh Yeshiva. Um, okay. Time runs on. So I have, I have one more sort of open and easy question, but it, it's inviting you to comment more broadly. You are now uh, 82. No, you, uh, yes, you are 82 as of October. Um, we might say it's one of your more mature years. You're in your mature years, we might say. Um, younger than ever. Right, younger than ever. No, okay, more younger than I've ever. Never been as, I've never been as old as I am today. Right, okay, fair enough. And um, look, it's a question you might ask anyone, but I'm asking you. What, is there something you wish your younger self had understood earlier or known? And is there something that, is there something or is there a set of things you really wish you could impart to younger people? You've been imparting so many things to younger people of student age or middle age or otherwise that you might imagine they need not learn through their own experience, but instead perhaps could just simply skip those steps and benefit, no, uh, benefit no, from your wisdom. No way. I don't think there's any way of learning things by skipping steps, but I can say that there are certain things I wish I had known more fully okay. long ago, that is how much difference it can make to be kind, mm. to be generous, to, to give more of yourself. That's really, I mean, it sounds trivial, trite, whatever. That's the most satisfying thing. It's what you give away that, that, you, that matters most. 
And there were times in my life when I was much younger, Mm. when I was less generous, less kind, more critical, more almost cruel in my in my savage critique of Mm. people. When I was a debate coach, I would often say things to young debaters about Mm. how terrible their performance was that I now just wince at. I mean, there were people you've heard of that I I savaged. Larry Summers is one. When I used to judge Larry as a debater when he was at MIT, Mm. and I ripped him up and down the. Tore him a new one several times, and he I is often he has often attributed his weight challenges to that moment in his life when he interacted with you. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I that, so I wish I had been kinder uh-huh. in my life. It is very interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have redone very much. Okay, when did you become more kind? Aldous Huxley, I think it was Aldous Huxley who said, um, at the end of his life, right, you, the, 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 the only advice he really had was try to be a little kinder. He said, it's, it's sort of, well, but that's basically it. Aldous Huxley, I think. Well, if I, it depends on how much time, who I was talking to and how much time I had. I hate to think that that's all I have to say, but that's the most important thing that occurs to me now. Right. So there was a, that implies a kind of impatience, a connection between impatience and, or patience and kindness, or impatience and the absence right. of kindness. Okay. Um, fine. Uh, is there something you think I ought to have asked you? No, this has been great. Um, I think we should wind it up just for various extrinsic reasons of Perfect. things I have to do, but I'm very glad that you set this up and I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions and all of the careful research you put into it. My great pleasure. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.